Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, so we recently spent uh, 12 weeks in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, together, right, doing the rebuild series. And then last week we had uh, Pastor Joshua from Fishers of Men come. This is our first uh, kind of international partner service. That was great. A lot of kids got sponsored. Uh, there's some really cool things that, that kind of happened through that. So I hope that you were encouraged about that last week. And then this week, kind of leading up to our 10-year anniversary, we're going to begin to kind of go back to uh, the beginning for us. Like not, not the beginning as in creation, but the beginning of, of the church here and look at our vision and our values and our core beliefs and really what we're trying to do and what God has asked us to do as a church. And it seems kind of natural to drive this direction as a big marker, like a 10-year anniversary is coming our way. Uh, But but also here's the reality of it. If you look around the room today or maybe you have in the last couple weeks, uh, the room here feels much different than it did two years ago. Uh, We've had some people move on from our church family and like that's That's hard, but we just need to understand that's happening. We need to lament that properly. Uh, But also, praise the Lord, we've had some new people, some new families, some new singles come, and it's been a joy to begin to to walk with them and follow Christ with them. But this means that there may be some that don't fully understand uh, who we are or what we're trying to do yet. You may not even understand the reasons that this church started uh, in a duplex well over 10 years ago. Uh, over by Rockbridge. And we want to be able to kind of circle back and make sure we know why we exist and what we're trying to do uh, together. So we can kind of be on the same page vision-wise. But uh, that's not the only reason that we're covering this together leading up to our 10-year. Mike Tyson said famously, right, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And what we know is, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, maybe if you're a glutton for punishment, I don't know how you look at it, but uh, one thing is for sure, we've got punched in the face metaphorically uh, starting in 2020, and that is the punch that just keeps on giving, right? And, and we feel it, and it, is, it has done so many things to us. But what Tyson met in that kind of quote that's been used quite often is we can all have a plan, a direction, a focus, a vision of what we're trying to do, but when pain or affliction or sorrow or suffering comes, or maybe just the right hook, um, the shock of that pain can be so overwhelming that we no longer understand what our plan is or what we're trying to do. So we want to focus in light of what's happening on what our plan is. It's not just for new people. It's also for ones who've been here all along that we're circling back to where we started and the vision that God gave us so that despite kind of the the shock of the current cultural moment that we are in, uh, we can be who God has called us to be. We got to kind of wrestle with that despite part, right? What's, what's kind of happened in the last, you know, year and a half, two years? We've, uh, we're kind of looking at despite COVID and everything that goes under that umbrella, uh, lockdowns, mask wars, vaccine wars, information wars, an election like many of us have probably never seen, uh, a time where we had to see George Floyd and what happened to him. And then we had to kind of try and figure out what, what to make of things like Black Lives Matter and, and CRT. And then we see people of faith all around deconstructing their faith uh, out of pain or a number of reasons. And we're in the middle of pronoun wars all of a sudden. And so many other things are all around us. We want, despite all of that, uh, to see clearly who we are. 
There's been a lot of tension, a lot of suffering, a lot of anxiety, and we want to be reminded of who we are. As I've had kind of countless conversations with other pastors over the last year, this is the reality that we seem to all kind of be falling into together. No matter the size of your church, your location, your your demographic, or your vision, there's a need to re-clarify and re-communicate vision for the church, no matter who you are or where you are. Because no matter how many times we've done it or how well or poorly we've done it, uh, we all need it again. We need to be recentered on why we exist and what we are doing. So to kind of give you a peek behind the, the curtain, so to speak, that's why we tackled Nehemiah already. Uh, we wanted to prepare our minds and hearts for a refocusing on the vision that God once gave to rebuild that back up all over again. That wasn't on accident. That was very much intentional going, God, who have you called us to be? How have we done that? And we can celebrate that. And how do we need to be called back to that simultaneously as well? So thinking over this kind of mini-series on vision and identity and values and, you know, all of that good stuff, uh, there's this realization that we've spent 10 years operating kind of in the same way or pushing in the same direction. That's how long we've had public services. We actually gathered as a, poor, as a core group uh, for about two years before that. But 10 years of operating in the same direction brings about an interesting and also vulnerable question, if we'll ask it. Because uh, we're tasked with now, after this time under our belt, analyzing what we've done and what we've said we are and what we said we want to do, the pursuits that we've taken on. And we have to ask the question, did we miss the mark 10 years ago? That's a vulnerable spot that we're in, but we have to do it. You're familiar with the saying, hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, now, in hindsight... With years under our belt, will we change everything? Do we circle back and decide the initial vision of Redemption Hill was actually kind of unwise or unfeasible or too narrow or not actually healthy to live out or, or, or too, too kind of niche in some way? We have to ask these heavy questions and they require honest answers in the current moment. And, and here's kind of what I've landed on. And I, I believe the elders are in agreement on this as well. The Redemption's Hill vision was then and still is now solid because it's biblical. So the vision is good. It's not good because we've, cracked, we've crafted something amazing. We didn't make some amazing spreadsheet and idea and, and prospectus and all this, and it's so wonderfully crafted that it's a good vision still. But it's good because it's a thoroughly biblical vision. We have taken what we want to be out of the pages of text saying, this is what the text says we should be, so we want to be that. It means we didn't create our vision out of popular trends. Right? There's a ton of popular trends throughout the church, isn't there? It wasn't about a growth strategy, and it wasn't personal preference. But we see all the time people start churches out of brand new ideas. Sometimes out of hopes for something new. Sometimes they start churches out of brand new ideas because they're angry at the people that they left before. Many people start churches with this new way of thinking, this fresh perspective about the bride of Christ, which means the church, uh, what she should look like and operate like and, con- and how she should conduct her, herself uh, amongst the world. But, but I need to say just as clearly as I can to you, that's not what we're doing here. Because the Bible lays out who the bride of Christ is long, long ago. It's already been said by God who we are meant to be. So we believe it's our job to be faithful to what God has called us to, not our job to reinvent what God has told us. That's important because our world is constantly adapting and changing and and moving and reinventing itself when things don't feel good. And and we just want to be kind of old school in, in the way of we don't want the world to define who we are. We want the word to define who we are. And even when seasons are good or bad, we want to stick to the word and what it has called us to be. It'd be a really good time for an amen to show me you're with me there. 
We'll try again in a minute. <laughs> Ten years, guys. Come on. Let's get an amen. We want to hold on as tightly as possible to the vision of what God said that we should be. And that's why we have confidence in the vision. It's not because of our bravado or swagger. It's because it comes from the word. Um, we'll soon take on our core identity in this sermon series. If you've been around very long, you've, you've heard us say that we want everything that we do to, to have this DNA element of, of gospel, gospel message, the only thing that saves, gospel community, what we're driven into when we are saved, and then gospel mission, the, the job that, that Jesus gave us. We, we are going to focus on that, but where we're going to start today is we're going to really look at the core text that we planted the church out of, just something that was really important to our hearts. Uh, we, we kind of clung to this uh, in the early years and, and all along. I'd say that there's probably days that we clung to it better than others, but the core text that we planted the church out of is 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Uh, for context's sake, this is a text that we'll read where we hear about the apostle Paul uh, and he has been ministering to this place called Thessalonica. And, and what happened is, is he's going to be defending himself from people who brought accusations against him for the way that he was doing ministry in this place called Thessalonica. And what he's going to do is he's going to show clearly why he's missional, why he shares the gospel in this text. But he's going to also talk about uh, really the way that he does it. The, the how of it. And that's what we want to look at because that's what we pulled uh, much of this core text that is our vision out of, the how. Now, uh, we'll read uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, actually, to see the, the greater part of, of what is going on here. But starting in 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to decide or to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own. Here's the, the verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. For you, brothers, or, or for you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul's been accused um, of just a really a, a number of things as he's ministered to Thessalonica. Uh, he's been accused of doing ministry really largely out of selfish ambition. Uh, the claim is that he was just trying to uh, kind of flatter people of power to gain influence and power for himself. He's been accused of fleecing the flock, which is trying to get rich off of the church. Essentially, he's being slandered everywhere by the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica because they're kind of jealous of the traction that he's getting in their own backyard, in their own culture. Uh, Thessalonica had experienced something that was powerful, and it terrified the Jewish leaders back then. 
They saw their authority and their way of life and even the culture just beginning to, to shift under something much greater than what they'd been living in before. And this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And it began to change a city. So Paul defends the missionaries and himself against these accusations. Uh, it's important to kind of remember that he's not doing it out of self-justification. Uh, he's not just wanting to clear his name. He's worried that if people believe that he is some sort of fake or imposter or, or a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing, that they'll maybe start doubting their salvation or the goodness of Jesus because if he's fake, maybe they're going to think that Jesus is fake. So he's wanting to defend what the gospel has done more than really defend himself. So he's coming in uh, to defend that what's happening. And this defense will find buried a way of life or a gospel path. This is what we want to take from this text. This is how we want to, to live. This is what we want to glean from it, how Paul lived there, uh, what he did, what the life of him and the other believers looked like, and how that caused an explosion of grace. Right? So we want to model how they lived, and we really want to pray for the same explosion of grace that they saw in Thessalonica that kind of shook up some things. That's what we want to see. So to pull out the way that he lived or this gospel path, we'll break this down into, into three parts. We'll look at focus, fashion, and fullness. What was their focus? What was the fashion that they went in? What was the fullness of the way that they also went? The best way I can try and give you something to remember, the, the focus. They came with truth, truthfully, right? They came with truth, truthfully. In verse two and three, it says that they'd already suffered and been shamefully treated not long ago. But despite that, they came with boldness in God, with the gospel of God. That part's really important. Not boldness in themselves or their plan or their bravado, boldness in God with the gospel of God. And that appeal, because it was in God and the message of God, there was not any error or impurity of it. So Paul and Silas had, right before going to Thessalonica, they'd gone to this other place called Philippi. And they ministered there. You can see the story in Acts 16. It's pretty interesting. But Paul challenged some of the, the, the people there uh, and the way that they were making money in a pretty interesting way. And the magistrates got so angry that they drug him into this kind of uh, kangaroo court sort of thing. And they ended up beating him with rods over and over again. There's times where words just don't do justice, like rods, Beaten over and over and over. Again, the, the, the text in Acts 16 actually says that they were afflicted with many wounds. Like that's not a scratch or, or a bruise. They were wounded over and over and over. And then they were thrown into jail after they were beaten up, all for doing nothing wrong. Right? This is what they had just got done doing uh, before they came into Thessalonica. So as Paul says, they suffered and were shamefully treated before this. We have to understand he's not whining that somebody passively, aggressively like, put something about Facebook on him. There wasn't some like weird tweet or somebody didn't like not respond to a message from him. He got the tar beaten out of him for following Jesus. And this type of beating is the thing that would make a lot of us go, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Right? The, the Jesus, I told you to take the wheel and you drove me into a firestorm. I, I'm not sure I want to do that again. But Paul doesn't quit. We'd be tempted to maybe, but he doesn't quit. And even after that experience, he came to Thessalonica in boldness again in God. His point was, I just arrived in Thessalonica after getting beaten up and jailed in Philippi for speaking the truth of God to people who were without God. And then I got to Thessalonica and I did the exact same thing that got me beaten up and put in jail before. That is not the strategy of a man who's trying to win influence and gain friends. That's not a good plan. 
People who are worried about fame uh, and friends and finances don't come uh, in boldly in God. They come in like a politician. They smile and they tell people what they want to hear and they soften hard edges of the, the, the message and they do everything they can to kind of make people a lot of promises and keep them happy, but they do not bring in boldness the gospel of God to a place if they're trying to make everyone like them. This idea of truth truthfully is how we want to live as a church. No matter the cultural climate that we're living in or the suffering that we may have just gone through like just right before our temptation, uh, really because of suffering around us to try and make everyone like us, we want to fight that off and instead be bold in God. By sharing the unedited, unwatered down, unsoftened gospel of God, we want to live that out and be known for sharing it. We want to share truth, truthfully. The truth of God with true motives. Then the fashion. How do they come and live in that place. In verse 7, Paul says that they came in in a way that was gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, they came in gentleness. And church, that's how we want to be as well. There's a belief that to be bold in God or to be bold in the gospel of God uh, means that you need to come in like a wrecking ball, loud and aggressive and, and posturing and you need to fight and you need to defend and all of these things, but that's not really actually true. It doesn't mean to be bold in God, in God's truth, that we need to be aggressive towards the people around. What we need to understand is the true gospel will offend by nature already. Just the truth that you and I are going to have to understand. And every time you try and wiggle away into like, I'm going to make the gospel not offensive, you've ruined it if you've done that. The gospel in and of itself is offensive and it has to be because at the core of the gospel is the message that you and I and everyone born is lost in sin and has no hope of redemption without Christ in and of themselves. That we, by nature, we love ourselves, we love doing our own thing, we love our own pursuits, and we kind of function as our own gods, not yielding to and worshiping the God. So to speak to anyone about the universal need of salvation is going to be inflammatory because you're telling them the way that you're doing life is mocking God, and it's vile to God, and you'll never be saved or redeemed or live the life with God that you're meant to that way. Not everybody's going to love that but we can be gentle in how we do it. Does that make sense? The, the, the message is offensive, but we don't have to be. We don't have to come out fighting and swinging and yelling and posturing. Paul's also defending how he speaks to unbelievers in this text. How, how he speaks to unbelievers, but also how, uh, how we operate together. He's saying not just to unbelievers, but fellow believers. We're gentle to them, patient with them as they grow. Knowing that we can all be helpless and kind of make bad choices at times and need help and need love. He goes, not just with unbelievers, but with the church, I'm patient with them. Can you imagine, right, a, a mother with her child as she's nursing, like flicking his head, yelling, hurry up. I hope not. A mother's meant to be patient and kind and helpful. And notice how they even say a mother with her own child. There's this level of, of care. This is how Paul ministered to Thessalonica. 
This is, again, the way that we want to live amongst unbelievers. We want to be kind, not angry, harsh, rude, mean. We forget, to the best of all ability, live peaceably with others. Peace isn't always possible, but to the best of all abilities, we try. See, anger is everywhere. Posturing is all over the world. It's nothing new. Everyone has a hot take and anger to to drop on someone else. But to be a people who lay aside that while honoring God and holding to the truth of God, that's beautiful. That could actually be light into the darkness or what Jesus calls the salt of the earth in Matthew. Yeah, we have a hard message, but we can be gentle and kind with people who don't accept it yet and people who, who are around us who are living in it and just maybe fall every once in a while. We need to, again, be clear here because there's overcorrections that happen all the time. To be gentle does not mean be tolerant and let people do whatever they want. It's not what it means. To to be gentle is not to crush every people at every turn. If you and me are brothers and sisters, sometimes to be gentle is to say, hey, I love you, what's happening in your heart, but I'm not going to let you do that anymore. We need to be careful because gentleness in our culture hears, hey, it doesn't matter, do what you want. That's not their version of gentle with how the body acts together. Uh, Now the main part of our focus, the specific core verse that we want to kind of cling to, this is the centerpiece uh, of the the vision that God gave us when we we launched Redemption's Hill. It explains it well, and that's in the eighth verse. This is where we get the fullness part of the text. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready. Uh, to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. We just got to let that sit. Not only words, not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, our own heart, our own being. We are going to share all of that because you have become very dear to us. It's one thing for Paul, right? Accusations of coming in selfishly and to, to gain. And it's one thing for him to be like, I didn't do that. But here in verse 8, he's proving it by showing a beautiful path to walk down. He says, we became so affectionately desirous of you. We loved you so much because God has literally changed our heart and the way that we feel about you. We didn't even muster that love. The love of God changed the way that we love you. And now we love you so much that we're ready to share not only the gospel, but also ourselves. Because God had made you very dear to us. Now, this is not the way that someone looking to use a group of people would have acted right? If Paul was wanting to get rich and gain influence and power and all of those things from the people of Thessalonica, then he would have wanted those people to share their lives and those people to share their money and their food and their wealth and their position, all that. He'd wanted that to be shared with him, but he'd have no interest in giving it back, especially not his heart, not his time, not his self. He wouldn't have actually wanted to live amongst them in a way that lets them know him and him know them. See, the gospel path is a beautiful one because what it does is it kind of lives out this both and aspect of word and life. Uh, Some believe that to be a faithful believer really has a lot more to do with what you just say to other people and sharing the gospel with other people. And maybe you give religious platitudes or or Jesus-isms or or you Jesus-juke people, you know, all of those holy things that maybe you you do is you drop these these biblical things around people and then just kind of walk away and wipe your hands like, look what I did, I shared the gospel, it's great. And, and yeah, maybe that's an oversimplification, but the gist is there's many who want to share words, but not themselves. I'll talk at you. I won't actually show you who I am or be next to you. 
And the other flip side is there are many who will gladly share their life. They deeply want people around them. They want to be known. They don't want to feel alone. But the community is founded more on being together than it is the gospel of God and what God has done. So there is not really much truth in that place. Everybody kind of lets everybody do whatever they're doing without ever like sharing truth or calling people to remember Christ because they do not want the community to break apart. So you have one group, I'll share words but not me. And the other one, I'll share me but not words because I don't want to lose you. Paul comes in with this fullness aspect as he brings both together. He doesn't choose one or the other. He shares the gospel because it's the only thing that saves and because the gospel is what continually forms us and guides us and changes us as we live. We can't say it enough. The gospel isn't just what saves you. It's what changes you and carries you all the way home. But he does this gospel sharing in the context of sharing his life and life-on-life rhythms. I've, I've tried to speak of this in the missional pursuits of this before as a group of people who throw their lives into the lives of other people. You actively throw yourself into the lives of other people in a world that is radically individualized. Right? Do, you, do you understand the, the trends? People don't stay in the house that they're in long. People don't stay in the jobs that they're in long. People don't stay in the hobbies that they're in, that they're in very long because they're radically individualistic. They're only doing this path. It's mainly about them, not a big group of people. It is countercultural to say, I'm going to care about these people and I'm going to stay. Walking with Christ as I walk with them, loving them with the truth of Christ and begging them to love me with the truth of Christ. This has been the vision since the beginning. To not view people as short-term investments that we speak to here or or there, and then maybe we get tired of and and walk away. But those that we share our hearts with and and our dreams and our fears and our anxieties and our joys and our struggles, and we celebrate and, and we cry together as well, all the while speaking the gospel to the people as we do the truth of Christ's finished work on the cross, that Christ has made a way for us to be reconciled, that we could never get on our own. There's now a hope in Jesus, and this changes the way that we have fear of other people, the way that we live our lives, our pursuits in life. We continually say this message over and over and over. We do need to be clear. To share your life with people isn't the sexiest proposition all the time. If you've been in an MC for a while, you'd be like, amen. Yep. There's an over-romanticizing sometimes, like, though this is the call that it's going to be easy. It's not. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes sincerity. It, it takes vulnerability as well. To, to look at a group of people and say, I love you, and I'm going to plant roots in order to walk with you, even when you annoy me, when you hurt me, when you let me down, or when you don't show up when you promised. I'm going to walk with you. And you're going to walk with me as we follow Jesus. Sometimes we'll slip and fall, but let's follow him together. You want to go? Or for unbelievers, I'm going to walk in a way that loves you and shows you Jesus as I walk. I know you're not following him yet, but I'm going to follow him and I'm going to teach you about what I'm doing while I'm doing it. And I'm going to pray that you come too. This is what Paul modeled in the text before us. It was his ministry strategy. And here's why I'm confident in our vision. Because we stole it. It's co-opted. We didn't come up with anything great. It was what Paul did. And we're like, hey, I like that. It's thoroughly biblical. Want to do that? Yeah, we'll put it on a cup. Right? We've never put it on a cup. I don't know why I did that. I hate those. (laughs) I didn't get one. Okay. It's in the mail. 
we've tried to put this vision into practice mainly. And here's where we got to focus a little bit. We got to bring it out of ethereal and into right now. We're trying our hardest to put this practice into our lives or this vision into practice through our missional communities. So I just got to say lovingly, if you're like, I'm on mission with you. Are you an MC? No, you're not. I love you. You're welcomed here. I hope you'll still come. We just need to clear some things in a little bit. This is where we're trying to live life together. This is where we're trying to gospel each other. This is where we're sharing our lives. This is how we're trying to live this out as a local body. And, and yes, uh, there's going to be other aspects to it as well, but MCs are where we're regularly known and known by others and where we gospel other people. To, to think that you are going to gospel other people and know and be known but never have a rhythm to be around those people is just not true. Then on the evangelism side, how we model this like Paul did in Thessalonica, I believe it comes through the act of radical hospitality. Right, for people who do not know Jesus, it's actively pursuing to love the people who aren't like you, don't believe like you do, and maybe they don't even like you. Try and pursue relationship with them in ways that open your home to them. Guys, this is why we talk about it a, a lot. This is why hospitality is a prerequisite to being an elder, because if your home is closed, your heart is closed, and your mission is closed. If we want to be missional, we open the front door to other people, invite them to the table, share meals, conversations, and if you're so inclined, good drink with them. In our current culture, this is countercultural living. Again, because it takes time and intentionality and proximity. Why? For the purpose of loving others, believers and unbelievers and experiencing the love of Christ with them. Can, can I just say that? Like we need to experience the love of Christ and part of the way that we do that is not alone but with other people. Again, this is going to necessitate changing schedules at times. How can you share your life if you have no time to be with anyone? Making space to, to live next to people who they just don't believe what you believe offer the glory of God so that they may come to faith at some point. This is hard. It's difficult. It takes work. And my heart has been, like, just forgive me if I go on a tangent that's not helpful. My, my heart has been aching for, we have many people in the medical field, and you're, you're demanded right now to work so much. My heart's aching for you, just knowing that you already have so much that it's expected of you, and then so many of you are still trying to to know and be known. Man, I'm, I'm sorry for the suffering that you're going through. It's hard to carve out more time when the world's already asking so much in the light of the pandemic that's going on. Man, I just, if that's where you're at, I, I hear that. And I, I'm sorry for that that's going on. I don't want to sound insensitive because I do realize that there are some extenuating things going on that just because uh, some are not there doesn't mean they don't want to be all the time right now. As we wind down this message over the vision of how we want to live, I want to just slow down and just say this, we've got to learn better. We've talked about this a lot. We, I think we've done a good job in Nehemiah and some of the other things trying to bring it up more. We've got to do a good job of celebrating and owning things. So if you've been doing this First Thessalonians 2.8 with us, if you've been growing with other believers, sharing your life with them, while pointing them to the finished work of Jesus and asking them and giving them freedom to point you to the finished work of Jesus. And if the speaking of the gospel back and forth has kind of caused you, even maybe if it's clumsily, to try and be missional and care for unbelievers by sharing the truth of God with them, 
Praise God for that. Like sincerely, sincerely, there's a million other things that you could be doing. But you're choosing to follow Christ, who Paul chose to follow. And we're trying to follow in that model. Here's the beautiful part. If you're doing that, you're choosing to walk on mission with us in Columbia. Man, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I, I've, I've had so many conversations that, that some of you are just, some of you are not hard enough on your hearts and some of you are too hard. For the ones who are too hard, where you begin to walk in this, that's an amazing work in our world right now. Does it mean you're perfect or you should kind of have a swagger? No, no, no. Praise God. God has brought you on his mission with other people. Do we fall? Do we do it clumsily at times? Yeah, probably. But there should be joy in knowing God brought a vision about, brought a people together, and some of us are doing it. Man, worship in light of it. God, thank you you've done this. I didn't even realize the process. It's been a slow, long eight-year road, and look what you've, you've done. I didn't even know how to share the gospel with myself, and now I'm sharing it with other people. And Own that. Worship in light of it. That's a good gift. That means he's maturing you, he's changing you, and, he, and he's drawing you near, and, and, and probably that you're finding your security and your meaning more in Jesus than in the world around you. Take the victory. Does that mean the work's done? No, probably not. But here's my prayer for you. In the next seasons that you walk in that, I'm just praying for more fruit for you. That you'd see people come to know Jesus, that you'd see your love and your experiential of gospel community deepen to where there's just gratitude and joy. But just honestly, I'm praying for results too for you. I want to see that person you never thought would come to know Jesus. I want to see, and I've said it before, I want to see Lauren and other people going, you need to have another baptism service. Like we just did that. Okay. Take the victory, worship in light of That's a good thing. We're on mission together. On the flip side of that, if you haven't been living in that way, I just want to invite you to. Uh, I'm not going to try and use a hammer or guilt you or slam you or shame you or anything like that. My hope is just that you will ask the Holy Spirit where things are at right now. If he says, hey, you're not doing that, that you would just acknowledge it and opt in. There's no reason to walk in crushing defeat when you can just repent and it's already been paid for and then you can just walk in. That's my hope. Come follow Jesus with us. It's messy. Sometimes it's going to hurt. Want to sign up? But it's the plan to know and be known, to walk in light of what Jesus has done with other people, begging that Jesus may save others. Even though it's messy and hard, I promise you this, Jesus will meet you there. He'll be more than enough. Christ died on the cross not to create an army of individuals. We can't say it enough. This idea of your personal faith that never touches anyone else, it's just not biblical. He died to create a community of people, his bride, so that they would shine the radiance of Christ into a lost world that deeply, deeply needs it. So if you've gone off of mission, right? COVID or the years or maybe just the last couple months, if they've just thrown you off or maybe you've never kind of bought into being on mission or walking out this vision with us, here's the thing, I pray that you'll change that. Come, walk in. Come be a part. Walk in mission with us for the glory of God. We'll be a small ragtag group that begs God to do something. This is our vision, a changed people by Jesus, living together through Jesus on mission to Jesus' kingdom for his glory. People together sharing the gospel and their lives. It's a powerful thing. And I'm hopeful that you'll see the beauty of that. Some of us have even been stirred in the last couple months of just life together and and what it's done. And I pray that your heart will be more and more stirred for that.
Let's say, too, as we talk about vision, if you stand here just going on the outside, like, hey, man, I haven't opted into the vision or anything, like anything, anything. I just want to continually, faithfully tell you this is the message that we follow. We're broken in our sin. You and I sin by choice and by nature, and God could have left us alone, but he didn't. He sent Jesus to pay for the problem of our sin, and all we have to do is put our faith in and follow this Jesus. We don't have to know enough or arrive to a point or do enough to earn it. We just believe fully in him, and we're adopted into the family of God. There's no resume that you need. In fact, you trying to bring your resume is the biggest problem. If you haven't put your faith in that, man, I just, I just ask you to. I would love to pray with you later if you have questions about that. We don't ever want to assume, but if you've been waiting, why? There's a God who loves you, even the you that sits here right now and in your mind isn't complete. He loves that you and Christ died for that you and I pray that you put your faith in him. Garrett, you can come up. We're gonna take communion today as we worship. There's the honest hope that you think through vision the way you've walked, what's important to you right now and you feel drawn in, but here, no matter if you're celebrating, look, man, God pulled me into his vision or maybe you're going, man, I haven't really done that. If your faith is in Jesus, come to the table and be strengthened though. First Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we worship, man, I pray that you take the elements and see that there's blood that has been shed and a body that was crucified for you. What does this mean? If your faith is in Jesus, God can't love you anymore. He, he looks at you and sees a clean resume, a loved son or daughter, and it's only because of the cross that that happens. So as you come and, and take, no matter how you feel about your last week, understand that there's a sacrifice that's there for you. There's a God who loves you, and we're even gonna sing and talk about it in a minute. The hope is that we would abide, that we'd rest, that we'd live in this love, and that we'd be nourished in it. So as you take, remember the goodness of what God has done. Anyone can take. You do not have to be a member here. All we ask is that your faith be in Jesus and that if you are being called to repent of sin by the Spirit or the Word and you refuse to, it's probably a good idea that you don't take today. But beyond that, anyone can take and be refreshed in the beauty of what God has done in you. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.